Welcome back to For Folk's Sake, where we don't care who you are, what you've done, or where you've been. We just want to hear about it. Episode four's guest is Haley Selledge. As you can see from the title of this episode, I met Haley when I first moved up to Washington to be with my husband. And she was the first like wife friend I had or friend whose husband was also in the organization. We always refer to each other as wives. And so she was the first wife friend I had. And I moved up to Washington. I didn't know anyone or anything. I did not do the research I should have done, but I quickly learned she taught me all of that. So she was very integral into making me into this experienced wife that I am. She's kind. She has this heart of gold where she will do anything for anyone at any time. And she is resilient. She, and she perseveres and she does what's best for her and her daughter. Her daughter, who I'm actually the godmother of, like a fairy godmother. So that's super cool, too, that we have that connection. She's an amazing mother. Her daughter is absolutely amazing, too. She's smart and she's funny. And she's just so sweet. She's like a sticky, sweet little girl. So before I interview people, I usually give them a pre-interview. So it's just kind of like little questions. And one of the questions that I gave Haley was, what's one of your biggest regrets in life? She kind of started out the question as like, oh, I don't have any regrets, which a lot of people do say because, you know, if you have regrets and you're kind of like, your life wouldn't go the way that it went. And if you're happy with your life, you don't have anything that you would want to change. The first thing that she kind of mentions after saying she didn't have any <laughs> was that she regrets that she didn't get on the plane. And she... We'll be telling the story of her brother, Alex, who committed suicide. And so this is going to lead into my next point. We have a massive trigger warning, disclaimer, whatever you want to call it on this episode. We're going to be talking about suicide. We're going to be talking about child abuse. We're going to be talking about um, stalking. We're going to be talking about just stories with severe mental illness involved and last week was mental illness awareness week so I feel like this is a really great episode so with that being said I want to give a huge thanks a lot of props to Haley for opening up being so vulnerable uh giving us a little peek into her life and just these interviews are emotionally exhaustful I mean some of them are really lighthearted and fun like my interview with my dad was really fun and we we're just sitting in the closet drinking beer and some of these episodes are heavy, you know, they're emotionally draining to converse and talk in two hours about the worst events of your life. So I think we should all just kind of pause for a second and take a moment of gratitude for these guests for sharing their stories. At the end of the episode, there's like this small cut and it like cuts to music. We had kind of like drifted off into a different conversation that was like kind of like a sidebar. Um, so it just kind of cuts off. And then at the very end of the episode, we talk about memories and uh, what it's like being married to someone in the military, in the organization. And so maybe if that's something you're not interested in, when you hear the music, you can just cut it. Um, I know I do have a lot of supportive wives on here. So I think you guys are really gonna enjoy that end part. I'm super excited for you guys to hear this episode. Once again, huge thank you to Haley for welcoming me into her home. As always, enjoy the episode, guys.
I were to have still gotten on that plane, it wouldn't have changed anything. You really think so? Yeah. You just, like, know. Because, like, I, well, I knew from when he was born. Like, everything in my body just told me he, he wasn't going to have a wife. He wasn't going to have kids. He wasn't going to. I don't know what it was. But I just remember as a kid being like, don't attach myself to this person because you're not going to be here. And I don't know if it was because I'd been around so much death or like what it was. Like, I obviously still attached to him because he's my brother. Right. But like, I just had this feeling like he wasn't supposed to be here. As a child. Yeah. And he, so, which is ironic because he had open heart surgery. As a child? As when he was a newborn. He was one of the first people in the States to have, instead of the heart surgery, they used to do it cross chest. They would slice you open, break your ribs, and do open heart surgery from straight on. They did his. They made an incision right in the middle where the sternum is, all the way around to the center by the spine, and went in through his ribs to do a surgery. Hmm. So um, he had a kinked aorta and a missing valve. Wow. And so he had, in like his first couple months of life, he had, I don't know, like 20-something surgeries. Um, to do with like his heart. And then he had like, he had hypodasia as well. Just a slew of different things that were wrong. Mm -hmm. And then, so I don't know if like that is what like gave me that initial instinct. Yeah. But, um, like I had the same feeling with my mom. And so the whole reason I didn't fly to see him. So I was supposed to fly the day before he killed himself Mm -hmm. and be in town. So had I flown, would it have stopped it? Maybe, but I think only for a short period of time. I think he was still so depressed it was going to happen regardless of... Because, like, that's something really important that people have to remember is it's not on you. It's not your responsibility to make sure somebody is whole. It's your responsibility to make sure you're not a shitty person. Right. But, like, if somebody's missing something, you can't necessarily give that to them. Right. You can, like, support them in their journey, but, like, it's not up to you to fill in the pieces. Yeah. And so, like, with him, he felt very... He... It was something he said, like, all the time. He didn't feel in place. Like, this wasn't his place. He nowhere felt, like, home to him. Nowhere felt right or comfortable. And no matter where he was, he didn't feel loved. So he would go to Montana to be with my mom, like, when my mom and my stepdad separated. And... He didn't feel like that was his place because he was missing his dad. He would go back to my dad. He didn't feel like that was his place. And then when they were together, it was just ultimate chaos. And that wasn't his place. So there wasn't a place or person that made him feel like he was home. Yeah. So with that, I feel like nothing, nothing would have mattered because I had spent like so many nights, like when he was younger and he was depressed, like searching for him and like looking for him and finding him and I had delayed like the situation that happened so many times prior to it happening right that it was just inevitable at that point unless he was like you know like locked down somewhere and maybe got like more mental health but I think there was too much damage done through like childhood and like his body was deteriorating so My mom never took him back to do, like, his post-op things that he was supposed to do. So his rib didn't heal properly. So it had, like, pushed out and was enlarged and was sticking out of his chest. So it looked like his chest was part of it looked like it was caved in and the other part was, like, a lump. 
And then he had, like, these bottle cap glasses. He was, like, legally blind. So kids would just bully him all the time and, like, break his glasses. Like, his... The, the lenses alone, like, not designer, they were completely basic, just wire lenses to hold his frames were $300 or to hold what? his lenses because they were so thick. It was just crazy. Like, kids at school would always, like, break his glasses and, like, do, like, stupid fucked up shit. And, like, people were just, like, really mean to him. And he was, like, the most genuine, kind-hearted. Yeah, so he was just sick and, like, bullied and picked on, like, his whole life. And then, like, home life wasn't, like, that much better anyway. Yeah, so, like, he... Are we doing this? Oh, yeah. I've been recording for like six Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I always do that to everyone, though. I never tell anyone when I start because it's just a conversation um, that we're just, just so happen to be a microphone in the middle of it. But so yeah. he, um, yeah, so he got bullied a ton. Like, I remember one girl when he was in middle school, she was picking on him for his glasses and she shoved him into a locker and broke his glasses and he called her a bitch. He got expelled. She didn't because he called her a bitch, even though she physically put hands on him. And that was when I got banned from the school district because I threatened them with, like, the news. And I threatened to, like, march my happy ass in there. And I was like, I'm going to... Ruin your life. Yeah. Like, this is crazy. Like, how could you... Like, this kid is bullied. Or there was, like, another time he got expelled. And six other kids... Like, I couldn't even finish the video. I was crying so hard. He was walking home, and they recorded it. It was, like, when cell phones just started really becoming, like, everybody had them, and everyone was recording. He was walking home, and one of them came up and hit him over the head with a skateboard. And these six kids started to beat him up and just, like, assault him. And he tried to, you know, fight them back. And But he's, like, this skinny little beanpole. Yeah. And I remember reaching out to the parents, and I remember a couple of the parents were just like, what's the problem? And I was like, your kid's a bully. That's the problem. Like, your kid physically went after a weaker kid for no reason. Like, he had this, like, the contagious laugh. Like, he would help anybody. His, like, his best friends that he had were, like, these other kids that were bullied and picked on that he, like, reached out to and was, like, he was, he made such an impact on these kids' lives. It's, this is, like, the craziest part of, like, my brother's legacy. All four of his best friends found out they were pregnant uh, within a week after he died. So only one of them was a girl. The other three were, were guys and their girlfriends. They all found out they were pregnant. They all found out they were expecting. They all named their kids after my brother. So they all have Alexander in their name. So there's Hayden Alexander, Blazin Alexander, Russell Alexander, and Julius Alexander. Oh. And that's like... That's, yeah. That's way more than a coincidence for four friends. First of all, for four friends to be pregnant at the same time, let alone like find out after. Right after he died. It yeah. was because I remember being at his memorial and my mom, I was so mad because we just got her out of rehab and she, people were giving her alcohol because they were like, what do you do to a mother who just lost their child? You don't enable you, her. <laughs> Right? That's what a normal person would think. But, like, you feel so much, like, guilt and shame because you can't imagine. Like, I can't imagine what I would do. I would probably become an alcoholic. I would kill myself. Like, just straight up. If I lost Anna, I could not function. I couldn't... I couldn't do it. If I lost my kid, like, she is everything in my life, my being. And I can't imagine. And I think the hardest part was after my brother passed... um, my mom, so, like, my grandma had a lot of kids, and so we have experienced a lot of death just because of age and, you know, other things. My mom's sister was dying, and my mom didn't really get along with this sister. And I was like, you need to call her. Regardless, if it's, if she's 
faking it, she's faking it. But you need to call her. And she was like, no, I'm not going to call her. And we were arguing. And I was like, you know what? You need to buck it up. Just be an adult. And she was like, I can't buck it up anymore. She's like, Alex died and I just can't handle this. She's like, if you died, she's like, I think I could make it. But your brother died and I can't. I can't handle life. And that was, I think, one of the cruelest things I ever heard in my entire life. Like your mother saying like, oh, if you die, it's fine. But your brother died. And like, I get it because he was my baby too. He was you know, five years younger than me. Just like this little blind butterball <laughs> of laughter and just like love. And so that's what she did. That's how she killed herself was she drank herself to death. She died exactly one year and one month after my brother passed. She, ironically, I, I got a call. I remember I was in our house on Fort Lewis in Carter Lake and I was in that kitchen Oh yeah, and I was cooking, and um, and I got a call that my mom was in the hospital, and I was like, okay, she's. I was being my mom at that point. I was like, she's probably being dramatic. It's no big deal. Yeah. And my aunt was like, no, I think it's serious. And I was like, okay, we'll we'll come over. We will drive to Montana. You know, we were super broke, like we didn't have anything. Right. So my other aunt came and picked us up, drove us to Montana. I get there and. I didn't even recognize her. She was yellow. Yellow. Like, if you took a highlighter, if... Oh, because, like, her... It's her liver, right? Her liver, her liver was failing. failed. Yeah, her pancreas. She got pancreatic cancer. And um, it's... I always make it... Uh, I can't think of that movie, but it has, like, Elijah Wood and um, Bruce Willis and uh, Sin City. And mm. the, the bad guy is, like, the, the gross pedophile. He's, like, that yellow color. Mm. That's the color that she was. She was that yellow. So I can't watch that movie anymore because, like, I associate it with, like, seeing her. And Anna was one at the time. So I had just had, like, this traumatic pregnancy and birthed her, you know, nine weeks early thinking my baby's going to die. A couple months later, I'm burying my brother. He's dead. And I just finished celebrating, you know, my my kid's first birthday, and now I'm in Montana, and I'm at a funeral home holding this new baby, and my mom's not even dead yet, and I'm purchasing a casket. I'm trying to purchase funeral stuff and, like, figure out what to do with her. One of my aunts, she's thinks that if I, like, cry in front of my mom, because I, I shut down and I do the things that I need to do when someone dies and I just get it handled, she thinks if they're mean enough to me, it'll make me cry, and then it'll make my mom sober. And I'm like, you didn't listen to the doctor. The doctor said you have to be sober for a year and then even be considered like you have to go through another evaluation for a transplant. Like she doesn't want to be here. I'm not going to take someone else's liver. I'm not going to like put her on life support or something and take someone else's liver who can go to someone who like truly wants to be on this earth. Like that's cruel. So I'm doing all these errands and my mom's sisters get to hang out with her. And at the same time, I have this breastfeeding NICU baby that I'm running yeah. around with just there. And I remember I'm in like the hospital waiting room. We we got like a private room that the doctor assigned to us because it's a very small hospital in a very small town. They gave us this room. This goes on for about three days. And then the doctor pulls me in one morning and he was like, I think we should talk about hospice. Like at this point, there's no return. You know, she's she's shitting herself like 40 times a day because mm-hmm. we were talking about getting her on um, like a health program making her dependent with the military but to do that we had to go back 
to to base and fill out this paperwork in person. Yes. So we're talking about that and then I can't handle this. Like I've been completely shut down for the last year. You know, my brother died and I've been raising this baby across the country with no friends, no family, like nothing, just completely alone and like isolated. I don't know what to do. So I get everything put in place. I get my mom transported via ambulance to my aunt's farm, which is like 14 miles out of town, um, and get her set up in this room. Um, and I have to talk to hospice. And while I'm talking to hospice, this made a lot of other people in my family mad at me. I was like, I want the medication under lock and key. I want it logged because this morphine and this medication is for my mother's pain. I don't care if she's dying, but I do not need somebody else taking it. And using it for themselves because one of her sisters was an addict and had used. And I had thought at the time still was frequently using. And I was like, I need it locked away. I need it logged so that way I know my mom's not going to be suffering and in pain when she goes out. And we, my, one of my aunts and I got into the fight and I was like, okay, I'm leaving. So I left and we got on a train to come back and my mom died a couple hours later. And I never got to talk to her. And the fight we got in was everybody told me, you need to go in that room and you need to tell her you forgive her. And whatever she did is forgiven and it's okay. And I'm like, but I don't forgive her. It's not okay. Like you didn't want to lie to her. That's a lie. And I mean, it's been years now. I still don't regret it. Like, because everyone's like, you're going to regret it. You're going to regret not forgiving her. I'm like, no, because what does that do? She's already dead now. So... It it doesn't do anything for her. Like, when I'm ready to forgive her, like, I can still forgive her. I mean, she's still dead. She wasn't conscious. She didn't know what was going on, like, with everything. Right. On hospice, they pump you full of stuff. Like, she would have been... Yeah. She... Well, because I'm pretty sure my other aunt morphined her out. It was, like, what we did with my, my grandma and things like that was when hospice would come in, we would ask them to morphine them out to just you know, prevent the the extra suffering that they had. Just kind of overdose them a little bit. Like, not saying we're murderers, but, like... Right. It's it's a fine line that unless you're in that situation, you shouldn't be saying anything Yeah, about it. and I mean, and it's a medical professional who's in there and administering the drugs. Right. So, I mean, again, it's not like we're doing it, but we did make the call, like, you know, go ahead and, and do this. They did make that call without me there. Which, again, I think is fine. Like, I'm still upset at her. I blame her a lot for my brother and his bullying. Because, like, her remedy to the situation, instead of going into the school or, like, handling or getting him in therapy or just, like, being, was to pull him out of school. So that he was, like, so far behind at that point. Like, then he was getting bullied for other things. And now, taking a step back and, like, going through some other, like, life experiences and, like, abuse myself, yeah. I can see where she was mentally. I don't think she was capable. I think she was doing the best that she could do in the situation. Right, with, like, the tools she had. Yeah. And were they good tools? No. She thought she was doing was keeping a roof over our head and keeping us clothed and fed Instead, my whole family's dead, and I just have a lot of trauma. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no. I just... Ugh. Because it's... And it's like, I couldn't imagine. Like, if I were in a relationship with somebody, and they were abusive towards my child, like, I would leave. I Like, instantly. Right. You know? 
And, but being in the situation, sometimes you don't know you're being abused. Do you think she was unaware that she was being abused? I, so, and like that's a hard thing is because I never physically saw her be abused, but I physically saw her watch me be abused. Right. And so that's where, and I remember she tried to leave once and I remember we were staying in hotels mm-hmm. and she, my stepdad had put a phone tap in the phone. Like he had tapped the phone so he could hear the phone conversations that we had had and he had hired somebody to follow us. And I remember my mom just being so scared and my grandfather passed like when all this was going on and had left her his house. And so she grabbed my brother one day and moved into the house. I came back from school. My mother and my brother were gone. I was still there. And it was like always like this. Why was I not good enough for you to protect? And so at one point she finally did ask for me back. And I was, I was 15 at this time, 15, 16. So I was very much, no, I don't, you didn't want me. Why do I want to go with you? Like, I would rather stay with this person who physically assaults me and beats me than be with you. And which is crazy to think about because you would think you want to leave this situation. Right. But like you get comfortable, like after going through so many years of like this abuse, you're comfortable. And it's like, predictable. Yeah. You, you know what's going to happen. You know, you're desensitized to all of it. So like, I remember going to like birthday parties for like friends. Cause I went, you know, I went to the private school and we would go to these birthday parties and I'd be like, why are these parents so weird? Like they're so like touchy and they're so feely and they're so, I, my mind immediately went to everybody's a pedophile and they're just like, they're scary people. So I didn't, I didn't talk to these. I didn't speak. Like I would not speak to these other adults. I just would sit there and watch. And I was very quiet and very much not like the person, you know, that, you know, like I didn't talk, I didn't speak. And at one point, this girl, um, you actually met her, Marianne. Oh, yeah. She was the only person in my life who ever went to, we were in the fourth grade, and she heard that that day my, so we, it was, it's funny, we would get excited like Christmas. It'd be like Christmas for us, medication day, when my dad would get his pain pills. Because we would have a really good week or really good few days, however long those pills lasted. Mm -hmm. He would be really happy. Everything would be really calm in the house. And this was not a pill day. And he had come in and he had broke. Um, I got a processor. It was like a laptop back in the day. Oh. And I was so excited about it. And he was mad for whatever reason. And he destroyed it. And I was very sad. And he lied to my mom. And he said it's because I left out in the in the middle of the room. But it's so funny because I can see vividly. I was in my bedroom. And like when you open the door, I was like right just sitting in the middle of my room typing, waiting to go to school. And he come in. And he just stomped on it right in front of me, broke it. And then he grabbed me by the arm and he drug me through the house. And we had these very like rickety wood stairs and he threw me down the wood stairs and demanded. And from that point on, I don't remember what it was that I had needed to do or whatever else, but I had bruises all over my arms. And so I would wear like my, our school sweatshirt. We had uniforms. I would wear it. It'd be 90 degrees. I would be in the sweatshirt. It'd be hundred degrees. I'd be in the sweatshirt. And Marianne had somehow, I don't know if I finally trusted her enough, I confided in her what had happened. She went to our teacher because she was like, this is not right. 
Oh, she like told an adult. She told a grown up. Good. I got pulled into the principal's office. I was mortified. I'd never been in trouble. I thought I was in trouble. And it was like the only male teacher in the school at that time, Mr. And he was one of the few adults that I was kind of, you know, like those dogs that are like very timid, but like eventually they kind of like, they get a little bit closer each time. Right. That was like how I was. And I, I kind of trusted him and got a little closer, got a little closer. Well, I got pulled in and he started talking to me. And the immediate thoughts that went through my mind were, if I leave, what happens to my brother? What happens to my mom? Is he going to start putting hands on them? Because I'm not here to take this for them. Because like my grandmother would always say, God doesn't give you any more than you can handle. If he's making you suffer, it's for a reason. Like these glorified saints who were, you know, unjustly like beaten and assaulted. um, Or like my confirmation saint was like, saint cecilia it was this 12 year old girl is not a very popular one who was raped and murdered and beaten in an alley and right like and my parents were like very confused they're like why did you pick her and at the time i had no idea i was just like her story for some reason really resonated right like i feel a parallel with this yeah so i always thought growing up okay i did something and god is saying this is what you need to live through to to be who you need to be and do what you need to do. And he knows I can handle it. So this is what's happening. And which is a very weird thing to think of. But when you're so immersed yeah, in like this culture or like these things, right? you don't think anything else of it. Mm-hmm. So like fast forward through that, like I told them I was a liar. I said, I'm a liar. Like I made it up. You told the adults who were trying to help you that you lied. I told them, I was like, I lied. I made it up. So... And I know there was a CPS call that got put in um, because he would not speak to me. My stepdad wouldn't speak to me for for a week or so. He wouldn't even look at me. Mm. And I was so scared. I like prayed. I prayed to God. I was like, please let him die. Let him die. Like, I can't handle whatever else is going to happen. Did you take his silence as like the calm before the storm? Like you would be like eventually like punished. Yeah. Like something would happen. Cause like sometimes he would come home and like, he would bring like these men with him, like these older men and they would like take turns beating me. And it, I thought it was normal. Like I thought this was what people did every day, like in their, their houses. And I never questioned it or thought about it. And like, I thought that was the only kind of, abuse that there was and then we had my daughter and my whole focus was focused every portion of my life was focused on her at that point right and i went through this traumatic you know labor it was like four days long and like we thought she was going to be dead we didn't think she was going to be alive super traumatic and i was like on all this medication and like they thought i was going to die and i was in icu so fast forward, I end up having this emergency C-section and they pull her out of me and they hand her to him. He holds her. He gives her back to the nurse and then they leave. I never see her. I don't hold her. I don't touch her. Um, they as in the nurse and the, Anna, yeah, the, the... the surgeons and everybody in the room. Okay. They just run off with her. And so I'm like, okay, like, is she okay? Is she alive? Like, what's going on? It's so sad to think about now because, like, on his NICU clothes, the clothes that she left the hospital in, I don't have them. I don't have things that my brother owned. 
that I'll never be able to get back. I don't have my family pictures. I don't have, and which they're just items, but like some of those, you know, you can't ever replace. They're irreplaceable. Yeah. And, and she's the most empathetic, caring, loving, sweet little girl. She is. She's the best. Is just like this incredible human being. And it's so funny. I see so much of my brother in her with like her laugh and like the things that she does. And it makes it so hard sometimes because I like, I try not to like cry in front of her. Yeah. You know, and like keep it together. And she does like this little laugh or she sees somebody like super upset. She'll go to them and she'll just start like giggling and like having a conversation with them. And I'm, and she has this concept of death that it makes me so sad that she has to have this concept of loss and death at such a young age. Um, Cause you know, she'll talk about it. She'll be like, that was your brother. Or she sees these pictures. Cause I have a picture of, you know, me saying goodbye to my mom with her before we knew my mom was really dying. Right. I was like, you know, it would probably spark for, I took the picture for Anna because I only had one other picture of my mom was not allowed to meet my daughter right. unless she was sober. And when my brother killed himself, that put that on the back burner. And so that was the first time my mom met my daughter was she was about four, four or five months old. And I flew across country for for his funeral because I remember I was on the phone with him all day, all day long talking to him and asked me to get off the phone. And we were sitting there and we were watching The Labyrinth and it's this old movie I'm Jim Henson, and we're watching The Labyrinth and The Power of the Babe. Oh. And uh, I'm holding Anna, and she is sleeping, and I felt euphoric for just a very brief moment of time. I felt at peace, and I hate this feeling. I, I hate it, because in that moment, I got a phone call from my mom, and... She's like, I need to talk to... I was like, okay. I was like, why? And I heard her say it over the phone. And I remember yelling. And I was so upset. And so I immediately just went into, okay. I was like, hold the baby. Like, I'm going to start packing. You need to call your work. I was like, we need to call your first wife. We need to let her know we're coming. Because she's going to be mad if we don't tell her. Right. Um, All the for things the kids. you think of in times like that. And, uh... So we're, we're doing all of that, and remember, I'm not really going to go into depth out of respect for, for his first wife, because I do love her, and we have a great relationship. Absolutely, yeah. But she did say, we got into a fight. She said something. We didn't really know each other at that point, and it's, like, one of the second worst thing that was probably ever said to, to me you. in my entire life. And we have addressed that and healed from it, and, like... You know, she's great. She was just here. And um, I remember we flew. We flew up to Spokane and we immediately picked up the kids. And it was so funny. It was like this weird little blessing because my brother's name is Alex. No, the oldest name is Alex. Yeah. And so we have Alex at the at the memorial. And um, right before that, I remember, though, how cruel it was. I had to go to the morgue and identify the body. You had to do all... 
and I did all of this because my mom couldn't handle it. My, my stepdad couldn't handle it. And I, I go there and, um, I have all the kids with me. I have this newborn baby and I'm breastfeeding her in the morgue, standing there waiting. I have to fill out paperwork and I tell them, um, my mom wants to see the body and I tell them I do not want her to see the body period in any way, shape or form because he had, um, how he killed himself. And because of how he had killed himself, legally, she wouldn't have been allowed to. So. Okay. We. So if there's any damage to the face, any sort of distortion, you don't get to see the body. Right. And then they lost the body. They lost my brother for for days. They couldn't find him. I don't think you've ever told me this part of the story. So. How you lose a body, I don't know. Yeah. But how I cope is with, you know, jokes. So, yeah. of course. That's why we get along so well. Right? I joked about it during his funeral. <laughs> Very quiet room. Oh, It's like, it was no. his last prank, you know? Because they <sighs> had his body the whole time. They just misplaced him, basically. Oh, my God. So, he, um, it, everybody was, like, giving my mom booze. And I was so mad. And then I remember Anna was stressed, so she wouldn't eat. So my boobs were like, if anyone's ever breastfed, they're like rock hard and they're painful. And we lost the cord for my pump. And so I couldn't pump. So his funeral's going on and I'm in this back room and I'm expressing my milk. So it's like you milk yourself. Oh, right. Yes. So I, I've heard about this. I'm trying to relieve myself. So yeah. my, my chest isn't hurting and I'm not like squirting milk while we're doing the more important stuff outside. And um, we, I'm walking around with this cup of milk because I'm not going to throw it away. No. I also don't have any bags to like, put the milk in. So yeah. I'm like, what do I do with this milk? And my godmother's standing next to me and my mom walks up to me and she's like, what is that? I'm like, it's milk. And she's like, no, it's not. It's like, no, you're joking. She takes the cup. She thinks it's booze and I'm trying to keep it from her. And she takes a big old drink and... <sighs> My godmother just starts laughing, and my mom, I'm like, I told you it was breast milk. And yeah. then my mom believes me at that point. So she is freaking out. She makes herself throw up, and it's so funny. Her best friend, my godmother, is standing there. She's like, this is probably the healthiest thing you've had in, yeah. like, weeks. Yeah. Like, you should keep that inside of you. Yeah, <laughs> like, keep, keep doing it. And then also you need to drink some water. Yeah. And then I remember it got cold and awkward because my... My stepdad showed up with his his mistress. Oh, so the woman that he, he cheated on your mother with. Which is funny because my mom cheated first, but everyone likes to forget that part of the story. And I think it's because she's uh, dead. Yeah. She, um, when she graduated college, she uh, went back for another degree, graduated with this other degree, and went to Las Vegas for like a graduation gift with a bunch, everyone in her class. She was the only female in her class. It was... Okay. When computers really, again, became a thing. So she graduated um, in computer science and computer engineering. She was the only girl there. And so she went with all these guys. And she ended up dating this man named Kevin. And she came back. And that was the first time she separated from my dad. And that was also when she briefly did the hotel thing. And then she came back and got my brother and moved um, into a different house and left me there. She was dating this Kevin person. Mm. And, uh, I only met him once very briefly. 
and they dated for a while and she got back together with my dad. Um, I think she just, she felt like she couldn't do it. Like she kept being told like, you can't do this on your own. So oh, like be a single mom. Yeah. So she, they got back together and they just could not get along. And this was the first time in my life I ever remember seeing my mom drink. Very first time. Like she didn't really drink at barbecues or anything like that. I never really saw it. Like it wasn't a problem. It wasn't like we lived in an alcoholic household. I think now looking back on things, this is something like we address in therapy a lot, like that I realize now my grandmother was really sick and she raised me for a long time. My aunt did first um, because my mom was always working. Mm -hmm. And before she met my stepdad, my aunt had cystic fibrosis and she raised me until I was about four and then she passed. Hmm. And then I was with my grandmother and my grandfather. Well, my grandmother was bedridden. And my grandfather was in a wheelchair. So I was taking care of them from a very young age. I would get my grandma's oxygen. I would set it up. I would, like, give her her pills. And then comes the counting of the pills. Yeah. I would count her pills for her when they got picked up from the pharmacy. So she knew how many were in her thing. And I just thought for the longest time, pharmacists were just like, Mm, this handful looks about right. Just going to toss that in there. And oh, you didn't think they counted it. I didn't think the therapist counted it. So my grandmother needed me to count it and figure out how many were there so she could ration it appropriately. Okay. Later on, I discover it's because multiple of her children are stealing them. And my mom is taking them for my stepdad. Oh. And so this is where pill day... So your mom was, like, feeding your stepdad's pill days, basically. Yeah. And I don't know if he was getting prescribed pills, too. Yeah. Or, like, what it was. But I remember them telling me it was because he had this disease of the spine. And I don't remember what it's called now, but I remember looking it up at the time. And... Because it was when we had encyclopedias. Before we had Google. Nice. And I look it all up. I look it up in the encyclopedia and these medical books we have. I find it. And I find out your your spine fuses together and you end up bending in half. So you'll walk. Like in the worst case scenario, you'll be looking through your legs when you walk. Oh. So this whole time I'm waiting as I'm growing up, I'm waiting for my dad's spine to fuse and him to, to be folded in half. Oh. Really, now looking back on it, I think it was just a bullshit story they told me. Yeah. To explain why the pills were there in case CPS or anybody else ever got involved. Yeah. Where it was my dad's medication for his back because he has such a bad back. Right. And how crappy for you to be waiting for the day where you're like, you're never going to touch me again when you can't walk. <laughs> right. And, and it never came. It never came. And the irony and like, and all of that is he was like this just physically abusive, terrible person. And he apologized to me after I had moved out and, you know, this was before, left. This is before I had Anna and he apologized to me and was like, I'm sorry. And it, it was a genuine apology. And people asked, like, how could I forgive him, but not my mom? And I was like, well, he sat me down and he owned what he did and he apologized. What he did wasn't right. It doesn't make it better. We don't have a relationship now. Yeah. I don't talk to him, but I forgave him because... He said sorry. And then in my mom's aspect, she just shut down and abandoned me and left me multiple times and, Mm -hmm. like, let it happen. And then again, like, when I look back on my childhood, I was was sitting here raising your two, not raising, but, like, 
caring for your two sick parents as a child. Like Anna's age, I'm counting prescription medication. I know how to fully put a nebulizer together, put the medication in there, switch out your oxygen tank. Yep. I know how to find the kink in your oxygen, you know, hose, like bring your stuff to you, treat your shingles, how to get you on the commode, get you off the commode. Yeah. I could never imagine my child doing that. Yeah. And I'm doing this like my whole, my whole life. Yeah. And, um, my grandmother died October 16th, like 11 59 PM. Okay. My brother's birthday is October 17th. Oh, it is. It's it is. Up. And I remember feeling guilty because my stepdad took me and because at that time I didn't know they were going to morphine my grandmother out. It okay. was, that's what was going to happen. So he took my brother and I, and he took us to a job site with him while he was working. And I remember feeling again, that euphoric feeling and very relaxed and like finally let myself relax and enjoy being happy for like a moment which is weird in childhood and she died and then like fast forward to my grandfather passing and I him and I were fighting I'd been at his house for like a week and he was just being a stubborn him he passed away I was supposed to be at his house and granted he was old like the situation itself I could have prevented but again you know he he either fell in the shower and then had a stroke or he had a stroke and then in the shower and um I remember again, like feeling so guilty because it was, it was like spirit week at school. And I was just like truly, again, like enjoying my time. So it's how I ended up getting so much anxiety as I was like, oh my gosh, I can never enjoy anything. Right. Because when I do, when I finally shut down. Another shoe's dropping. Somebody's dying. And then, you know, like fast forward and there was my brother with my mom. I didn't really have a euphoric moment or anything. It was just... We were on the train. I got the call. I knew it was happening. It was done. Yeah. And it's like now, like, one of my aunts has cancer, so I keep waiting. My grandmother's old. She lives by herself. Like, every time my phone rings, I'm just expecting, like, oh, my God. What is it today? Somebody's dying. And then in, like, the same aspect, like, I get so anxious because, like, I'm scared. Like, I'm going to die. And, like, what's going to happen to... My baby. My baby. Because I kept... (laughs) Right? (laughs) My godmother over here. Yeah, I'll take her. No worries about that. I remember this being a very main priority for you. And that's why you at... Yeah. Hey, just in case. It's... Because it's a very real, very scary thing. It's, you know, to... All of your friends that you had this little village in life with that you you saw. I mean, you know, we saw each other like every weekend. Like we always were doing something at one of each other's houses. Right. We had a very picturesque friend group at the time. Yeah. Very like everyone brings their kids for barbecues and we all like sit and have drinks and sit outside together. And And, yeah, we were all very much a family. Like. You know, growing up, like, very comfortable in chaos, put myself in not the best situations, obviously. Right. And I don't know if I'm victim-blaming myself, but I did I did get kidnapped at one point. And the messed up part of that was that was something I, d- I had never talked about. And I talked about it with a couple people, you know, people who were involved at the time, and then kind of, like, had blocked it out, and then it, it got brought up again later on, and... I shared, you know, this, this gentleman who had stalked me for a period of time had, um, 
shown up at the gym that I was at and had assaulted a person that I was at the gym with, had slashed all the tires of the car, had been, it'd been a very aggressive situation. Right. Um, I had come home at times and found gifts in my house. I'd found lingerie on my stuffed animals, like very creepy things, like yeah. stuffed animals that I didn't even have initially that were just like on my bed dressed up in this stuff and, and jewelry and flowers. And it was very scary for me because I was very young. I wasn't even 18 at the time yet. And he had taken from me one of the times he had broken in um, to my apartment. He had, because I lived on my own, I moved out, yeah, you know? Right. So he had um, broken in and he had taken from me my grandmother's jewelry box. My grandmother that I cared for, um, counted the pills for, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had taken the jewelry box. It was the only thing I had of hers. And he took it and he was like, if you want it back, I'm, this is the time I'm going to pick you up and this is where I'm going to pick you up. So I said, okay, I will meet you there. And I, this item was so important to me because I didn't have a lot. And this was like the one person in my life who had truly loved me at that time. You had a positive impact, a positive relationship. And uh, I get in the car and he locks the door. And I remember looking in the back seat and there is a shovel and there are zip ties there are black garbage bags and a tarp, and um, he's wearing very thick, like, gloves, like gloves that you would wear to cut wood. Mm. And in my brain, I was like, this is it. And he he drives me out to the woods, and um, I can't swim, and this is in, we're by a river, so... You can't swim? I can't swim. I'll teach you. So... Damn. He drives me out there, and... We're, we're, we're getting into it because he's like, you need to, you know, he's sick. He, this person is ill. He's like, you need to love me. Like I can love you. Like, let me love you. And I'm like saying whatever I can say at this point, because there's this stuff. Had you had like a relationship with him prior or was it just like someone who fixated on you? So he, how I had met him, it was someone who fixated on me was I'd met this girl that I was working with and he was dating her. Okay. And I had became a portion of this friend group and was around a lot. Mm. Um, And so in the beginning, before the obsession or the obsession that I knew of had taken place, we were kind of friends. Okay. So it was my friend, like my close friend at the time. You know, you have multiple best friends, you know, going through high school. It was my closest friend's um, boyfriend. Yep. And Someone you should feel safe with. Yeah. And they, they broke up and... But we still kind of had, like, this weird friendship because, like, I was really, really good friends with this guy, this other guy in the group. And um, I worked with another couple of the girls that were dating these guys in the group. So it was just kind of we were always around each other. And then he had broken up with this girl. And he was much older than me. And um, I want to say he was at least, at the time, much older. So he was about five years older than me. But, like, for me being... You know, 16, 17. Yeah. Um, Because I remember I was getting ready for prom. So it was around that time frame when everything had happened. And another weird thing that had happened was he had stolen my phone at one point. When, like, the obsession thing started becoming a thing. Like, he had taken my phone from a gathering we were at. I thought I'd lost my phone. And he had texted every guy in my phone inappropriate things. And one of the guys at work comes in, who I did kind of have relations with. Okay. 
and him and I were, were, were talking at the time. We're kind of seeing each other. And, but we hadn't had like any sort of like intimate relations. Oh, you're like in the talking phase exclusively. Yeah. And, um, like at that point I was still very like, I'm saving myself for marriage. Jesus is my life. Like, of course. Yeah. So I'm very naive Mm -hmm. to, you know, whatever. So we're talking and he comes in and he's being like very overly flirty. And I'm like, I'm so confused. I'm like, what? Like, what is going on? Like, you're being very touchy right now. Yeah. And I remember at the salad bar. Hands. And I'm, like, putting out the salad bar. And he, like, says something to me. And I'm like, oh, by the way, um, I lost my phone. So if I'm not texting you back, like, that, that's why. And I remember he gets dead f- silent. Yeah, probably white face. And he was like, what do you mean you lost your phone? And I was like, I, I lost my phone. Like, I don't know where it is. I still to this day don't know exactly the full what happened but to my knowledge it was like they had like text sex <gasps> whoa <laughs> this is not how i thought that was, that gonna, was go. gonna go because this guy was trying to figure out who what what guys in my phone i had relations with or things like that oh is like true. who's gonna be comfortable enough to text me back in this manner yeah and so you know, doesn't make sense because we're, you know, normal, quote unquote. Right. (laughs) Right. But that's where his thought process was. And I would get so mad because he kept sending me like flowers and flowers to my work and things. And I would just walk back to the dumpster and I would throw them away because he would usually be sitting across the street. At this time, I didn't know it was him. Right. I just knew it was a person and like a person was stalking me. I didn't know who it was. I didn't know what was going on. Fast forward, I end up finding out that it's him because he starts trying to have, like, a relationship with me. He starts, right. like, pushing the bound and I'm like, you were my my friend's boyfriend. I can't. Fast forward to this. You know, I tell him no and it, the police get called, like, because he kidnaps me two separate times. Oh, my gosh. And Haley. it's the first time because the police blamed me. I'm in my own apartment and it's my birthday. And I'm being held against my will. So it was, it's called involuntary detention is Mm. what the police called it. And I'm locked in the room and I can't get out. Okay. And I don't have a window for whatever reason, probably because I'm, you know, 16, 17 renting an apartment. So I'm renting, you know, not the nicest place and I can't get out. I'm freaking out. And the neighbors end up calling the police. They get them to let me go. They think it's just... You know, young, tragic love and... A lover's quarrel. I'm egging this poor boy on and it's, I'm the one causing this. But you're the one locked in the bedroom. I'm the one locked in the bedroom and I can't get out. Wonderful. Thank you guys. So I'm like, what... I'm like, okay, it's it's my fault. Apparently somehow I did something. I egged him on. I led him on. I made him think. I was too nice to him. Mm -hmm. I was too nice of a person. Um, And I did something to... To make him think I was interested. So mm-hmm. I made it very clear. I was like, I'm not interested in you. I don't think we should even have a friendship. The second kidnapping happens. And this is all before it happens. It can be prevented. I'm calling the police. I'm on the phone with 911. I'm like, all my tires have been slashed. My friend's tires have been slashed. This he, was when they showed up at your gym. At my gym. Yeah. I was like, he assaulted, like, my friend. person is very much gay and just was not, like, out publicly to the world. The friend that you were with? That got assaulted. That he thought right. I was having, like, relations with this person. Right. You're like, yeah, not at all. So 
Like, maybe if I was, you know, six foot tall, Puerto Rican, beautifully tan man, like, with right, the luscious Right, then I'd maybe have a chance with him, but... Yeah, maybe then he'd like me, but <laughs> yeah. no. And uh, he assaults him, you know, slashes the tires, and I remember this really nice gentleman at the gym sees what's going on, and he he calls bullshit on what the police... The police just think it's bullshit. And he is like, you know what? I'm going to escort you home. I'm going to make sure you get home. The gentleman, not the police. The gentleman. Okay. So we're driving. The guy pulls up next to us. And he was like, he's right behind you. He's like four cars back. Apparently this is like this guy's job, what he does. He He's in like security of some form. Oh. He's just randomly visiting family in town. Just happens to be this great person. Good place. You know. Right. right time. Yeah, yeah. And he pulls up next to us. He's like, he's right there. He's He's right there. He's right behind you. He's still following you. So I'm like, okay, take me to my grandmother's house. We get to my grandmother's house. I call my cousin. I have my cousin come meet us there. And he slashes my cousin's tires. And he, like, almost busts out my grandmother's window. He's, like, banging on the window. Like, almost breaks it out. I'm just freaking out. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know what to do in this situation. Right. The night progresses a little bit. Like, he leaves. I go. I go back home. And then I get this text. And he's like, you know, meet me here. How did time. you feel when you got that text message? Um, I think at the time I was just so exhausted, you know, like if I just, that's what I've been taught like my whole life, you know, the desensitized to like, if you just give in, yep. it will stop. Whatever yep. pain you're going through will stop. If you just let it happen, if you just give in, let it happen is my least favorite phrase. You will like never hear me say it outside of this conversation. Okay. So I'm like, okay. If I just meet him, if I just have a conversation with him, I just give him what he wants, this will all stop. Because now at this point, the girl at my work is her boyfriend's best friends with him and thinks, like, he's going to kill himself and it's my fault. Like, I did something and I'm like, dude, I don't text this person back. I don't talk to him. I avoid him. I've never dated him. Like, what What do I need to do here? So moving forward, you know, with that, we're, we're out there. And we're in the middle of the woods. And um, what I did was I ran. Like, I was in a ditch. I rolled out. And I went just running. And I ran through. There's, like, a low point. You can hit, like, a low tide in this river. Mm-hmm. And there's, like, this weird little island that you can get to. And that's where I went across the river onto this island to hide. Because I didn't know what else to do. But do not not acknowledge what these women are doing. Like, and I'm not going like, you know, how like they're gonna be like, oh, Dependa, I serve too. Yeah, no. that's different. That's not it's what we're talking about. So on an opposite spectrum, it's just I don't think like their mental health is just so tossed to the side. Like, oh, you signed up for this, you did this. You have no idea what it's like until you are in it and you are doing it. Yeah. Like you have no clue what what it's like to when your your husband's gone, anytime someone knocks at the door. Or you hear a car door shut. Yeah, feeling frantic. Like, is this, I haven't talked to my husband in three, four days. Oh my God, there's a red message. Like, is it mine? Like, yeah. it's somebody that works with my person. Yep. And it's super scary. And, and I don't think a lot of people, they think about it and they keep quiet about it because they don't want to sound like a dependa or you know they don't want to sound weak because it's drilled into our heads okay 
These are the signs to look for when your husband is gone. These are the signs to look for when your husband comes back. You keep everything together. If you're stressed, he's stressed. You need to be happy, healthy, and whole and look great for him. If you're not, that sucks. We need you to just pretend. Put some whatever on it and and get going. Yep. Like, it's... These women are a different breed of people. And I will always say that, like, living in that life and living outside of that life, they don't get it. Like, I would hear women complain, oh, my husband has to go on a business trip for three days. Oh, that sucks. I'm so sorry. He's going to Vegas. Like, the worst thing you have to worry about is a stripper. Like, that's bad. But, like... At least he's coming back alive. Like, whether he yeah. comes back and needs a shot, it's a different question. Yeah, he's some boy. But it's... That's interesting, because I always think it's like, you come as... Or you come into the life as a person, and then the lifestyle makes you that breed. Yeah. But you think it's like, it's specific types of women who, like... You, do you get what yeah, I'm trying to say? Yeah, it's definitely... Because we, we traveled, like, a lot, a lot um in the beginning and we were in different different ops groups and mm-hmm. met different breeds of women but they're all very similar in like a certain aspect and they're all very I don't want to say necessarily maternal but very protective like it doesn't matter if it's in like a maternal way towards children but it's a very very nurture giving very I also like security you come into this because most of our relationships are fast. They're they're very quick. And right. I think a lot of these people have experienced some form of trauma and they want some form of stability. And of course, it's the most instable, like unstable life. It's yeah, chaos. That's true. It's complete chaos. And it makes sense why I was so comfortable the whole time. And like it was so important to me, you know, like when I met you at that random thing, it was because I had just met Tawny. Right. And she was, like, the only person. She was, like, my first real, real friend that I had there. And I met her, and she was was so nice. And it was because our husbands deployed together. And they were like, you guys need to be friends. So so that's how we bonded, was like, okay, our husbands are gone together. Oh, I remember this now. Yeah. Yeah. And Tawny is who dragged me to the get-together to meet some other wives because you're so lonely. Yeah. Because, you know, you date for a couple weeks, maybe a year if you're lucky, but they're moving so much and it's so long distance and you have this need and this, this or you know, urge to have that stability and be together with your person. Be with the person you're in love with. So, and the only way to do that is to get married. Yeah. So you get married. And, uh, and they come in and then they want to nurture this other person and they want to love them and, and, and be there and take care of them. It's very maternal. Yeah, um, and, like, be a part of their struggle, too, where it's, like, you yeah. go do this hard thing, and, like, I'll stay here, and I'll be... I, I I'm, will support I'm you. I'm with you. I'm with... We're gonna do this together, and... And yeah. then it's it's hard, so, you know, some of these women end up realizing, like, it's very isolating and lonely, because they don't have that, like, bond. They don't have that village, like, what we had, that very picturesque village, like you talked about, and... So they they wander, they stray, and they meet someone else who's filling those needs. And it's mm-hmm. unfortunate, and it sucks, and it hurts, and, and there's where the divorce comes in. Or the the husband's traveling a lot, and, and he needs... I feel like all of these people, quality time is going to be somewhere in their bucket. Yep. In their, you know, physical touch, quality time. Something in there is where you need to be present with someone. 
And some people can get through that. They're with each other and they can be apart and it sucks, but then they're still faithful and loyal. Mm -hmm. And some people can't because they still have that, that trauma or whatever else that they need that void filled. And they're not being able to fulfill like that maternal instinct they're trying to give and they're not receiving. So someone ends up parting on one side and because it's hard because they talk about how they, they promote family so much, Mm -hmm. but they don't when it comes down to it. So I had take care. So I had very different night and day experiences between when he left bat and went to SF Mm -hmm. versus when he came back to bat. So when my brother died and I almost died and my daughter almost died, we were in SF and they just expected me to, they're very clicky. Those women, they're very a type, just like bat women, Mm -hmm. but they're very much, This is my circle, and until you're in that circle and I trust you, you're not here, figure it out on your own, do everything on your own, be alone. Yep. And I had called and was like, I think I'm going into labor. And they were like, that sucks, do it on your own. I was like, I don't have a car, I don't know anybody here. Like, yeah, like, and they were like, sucks, go figure it out. And I was like, okay. So luckily I had this incredible neighbor, and she was there with me, and she helped me. And she happened to be a military wife and and we bonded and we clicked and I, she's what got me through North Carolina, hands down. And then after that experience, we decided to go back to where he did. I didn't really have any portion or or part of this. Um, He decided we were going back to battalion. Someone stole the package on my porch. That's fun. Just now? Yeah, it's gone. Ah! Um. Do you have a video though? Yeah. And uh, we go back to battalion. Anna is, I don't know, maybe five pounds at this point. We go back to battalion and um, I'm super sick. I can't function. I can't feed Anna. I am just so sick. I have a fever going through the roof. And uh, I have a group of women I've never met and I've never spoken with. Showed up at my door to take care of me, to take care of my baby, to to feed me, to mm-hmm. to feed my child, to assist. Yeah. And... These women are also A-type personalities, but they're more, I feel like, open. They're very yellow. I don't know if you've done that. There's like the red, blue, green, and yellow. Oh, yes. So they're yes. very, very yellow. So like where the the SF wives, you know, they're very more reserved, mm-hmm. very more quiet and like together and aren't going to like put on a front. The... The bat women are more like, I will love anyone and anyone who's in the circle until you cross me. And then it's game over. And then it's game over. I was going to say, you got to bring up the rest of it. I thought you were going to be like, these bat women. I'm just kidding. No. No, no, everyone's super nice, but that's true. Like, once you've crossed that line, like, you you're, might as you're well out. Be, you're done. Yeah. But, uh,. Yeah, they were, and that's why, like, when we came back up to Lewis, it was so important to me when we were up there that, um, I wanted to make sure other people knew they they had someone or something and somewhere to go when their husbands were gone. And, like, it was okay. It was okay to, like, not have your life together. It was okay for your home to be messy. It was okay if you just needed a break. Yeah. And that was where, like, where you guys were always making fun of me for, like, cooking so much. But it was, like... Yeah, we roasted you. Yeah. But it was, like, you guys were all happy and you were fed and you were all... 
together and like we would like I would send him to work sometimes with like extra lunches and things like that because like some of the guys like you know they struggled with putting food on the table and like they wouldn't bring a lunch home so they would have like a protein bar and not because they were trying to like cut but their focus was on feeding their kids yeah not on feeding them and you know when you go through the defect it's you either get the the food there or you have to pay for it you get bas or you pay for the food the food yeah so it's like you have to choose do i get this extra 300 dollars a month and yeah. use it to feed my family or do i cover my meals for the month with this you know 300 dollars and screw my family yeah so in that situation like we would you know like when we do like the thanksgivings and stuff we would take like those big trays and we would bring them like the people on staff duty Mm -hmm. and things like that and just try to make sure like because a lot of those guys that are doing it on the holiday they're single they don't have you know family or their family there's a reason they were chosen to do a holiday yeah yeah and it's still just as shitty for them but like just being able to do like that was like the one thing that i knew that I could do to like help somebody is make sure they're not hungry. Yeah. Wow. I feel really bad now because I've definitely <laughs> roasted you a lot for like, oh, Haley's making a cheese platter. You know what I mean? <laughs> I will say that's one thing that Andrew always says about you. He's like, when we got back from like our respective trips on Thanksgiving and like, it's like Haley had Thanksgiving dinner for us, and she made sure we were fed that whole time, and I will not forget that for the rest of my life. It was, because, you know, like, we love you, and, like, that's the last thing you need to think about, and it's, I guess it goes back into, like, that death and loss is people always think about, okay, does someone have, like, a roof over their head? Like, what else do they have? But they don't think about, do they have food? Mm -hmm. Are they being fed? And I think it's more of a thought of thing now, especially now with like everybody realizing the government can give all these allotments and give all these kids in school free breakfast and lunch. And they've been able to do it for the last two years. Why aren't they doing it before? Yeah, but again, it's like at those parties that we would have a lot of like in the beginning, a lot of you guys didn't know each other. Just like I had met each one of you in like a different situation Mm -hmm. and invited you all but then we had all this food. So when you guys are going to have to be forced to talk at some point when you're getting getting plates and then it's like less awkward and wow. you're socializing and you're eating and right. it makes it just a more comfortable, natural feel. So like when I worked at Hilton, that's why they have those cookies oh. is because it's like subliminally and psychologically reminds you of home. You have a fresh, warm, baked chocolate chip walnut cookie. You come in, you're exhausted from traveling, you you sit down, like you're checking in at the thing, and they hand you a cookie. It's like one brief moment of relaxation that you get when you're already frustrated and traveling to try to make you a little bit more comfortable right. before you get up to your room. So you're already starting that decompression process right. on your way up. So it's more enjoyable that moment you open the door and walk into your, your hotel room. Dang. It's... I know, right? <laughs> like, all the things you didn't know. <laughs> yeah, marketing is crazy these days. Uh, and it's the same thing. Like, when you think about it, like, what's one of, like, the things, like, when you think about going home, besides not being your dad's favorite now? Oh, my God. Don't remind me. Yeah, honestly, I do. I think about, like, oh, well, my mom can make meatballs. Like, meatballs. Her, like, her Swedish meatballs. Like, that's what I think about. What's that thing that you would make us? Oh. I, like, can see you making it. This was when I lived in Parkland? Yes. It was... The it was pretzels? Like something, 
Yes. The like spicy pretzels. The spicy pretzels. Yeah. That's like my go-to. Like <laughs> whip something up quick. Everyone loves my spicy pretzels. I'll take those. <laughs> right. And then like at that point, like everybody had a dish. Like the cowboy caviar was always something. <gasps> brought. Oh yes. And then Tawny always would bring cream that, like, cheese cream and cheese. jam, mm-hmm. like the spicy jam. Yeah. And Allison always had her pearls in her apron. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> yes. Oh. Yeah. And then everybody just came. And then there were a the couple other families that came that didn't bring anything, but nobody noticed at that point. Because... Right. Because we all were just used to like, oh, we're going over to so-and-so's house. Like it was almost one of those things where it's like, do you want to come over? And then your next immediate thought after saying yes is I got to get something to take. Yeah. And so it was like, cause like I knew speaking with like a, a couple of the, like these families, like they didn't have money to get food or bring anything in but no one was ever going to notice because like we never asked you guys to bring anything i always like made sure i made something that was like enough yeah you always made like large dishes yeah yeah it could feed everybody so like i would always be like nope nope you don't have to bring anything totally fine just come and eat come and chill come and relax and it was that and then it was like that more support that they got and they felt more comfortable yeah and more normal not so alone yeah i think that's something that's always amazed me about you is that like you could literally be going through the worst things like and you still at the end of the day were like do you guys have food do you need anything if you are lonely and you miss your husband because he's deployed you can crawl into my bed at two in the morning and like it's cool like that's fine that's, like, my favorite thing about you. Oh. I love you. Well, <laughs> I my job you. is done here, then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, looks like I'm done here. Yeah, it's, like, and I think it's something that, like, so many people lack nowadays is they, it's, does this person have my values? Okay, then I care for them. If they don't, awesome. Bye. Then yeah. they don't matter. Instead of just valuing regardless of their beliefs or who they are or 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 any of that and it's something I think going through like all this loss and this trauma and and everything like has taught me if anything like I don't care who you are I don't care what's going on like if you need just a genuine like if you need a human connection like I want to help you yeah I want to to be there for you my therapist says that's a terrible trait (laughs) you just don't want people to feel as much in pain as you felt yeah and it's because he said that's why i put myself in the chaos as i leave myself in these these chaotic messes these people that are experiencing chaos and i'm comfortable in it and so i'm there with them but it's not keeping me on my train that should be driving hopefully a little straighter than windy all over a mountain well that's okay i mean i don't take my advice i'm not a therapist or (laughs) anything near a therapist but you just you have a heart of gold you know and you don't want people to feel the way that you felt which it's a lot i'm really happy to hear that you're going to counseling though because that's a lot of unpacking to do like starting at your literal day one birth you know with this therapist the first few times he just like stared at me in silence yeah because i was like hold on i was like we're gonna go through the short version we're just gonna hit hit the bullet points and then we can pick what we're gonna focus on for a bit yep and unpack yep and because i put everything in a box and i leave it in that box until my box is overflowing and then i have to pull something out and handle it and i'm trying to be better because i want to be better for for anna and teach her her healthy healthy good coping 
and happy skills and like let her grow up as privileged and untraumatized as, as I possible. can. Yeah. What a good mom you are. Anna deserves the world. She does. <laughs> and she, you deserve the world too. She is. She deserves everything. She's so genuine and kind. You'll get to see her here soon. Her bus should be here. Oh, I can't wait. What time is it? Oh my gosh. Okay, let's wrap this up. Wow, <laughs> that went fast. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Haley. Man. <laughs> it's good to see you. I love you. I know. <laughs> that was so much fun. 